Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of murder, domestic abuse, and sexual assault of children that some listeners may find disturbing. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. On December 17, 1958, 31-year-old Glennon Engelman closed his dentistry office early. He told his receptionist he was going downtown to buy a Christmas present for his wife. But his mind wasn't focused on the spirit of the season. Glennon was focused as he drove towards the St. Louis Art Museum. He was on his way to meet his ex-wife's new husband, James Bullock. Though James had no idea Glennon was coming with a loaded gun next to him. As Glennon pulled up to the museum, he slowly inched towards the back of the building. After a moment, he spotted James sitting in his car. The poor guy had followed the directions perfectly. With a sinister smirk on his face, Glennon grabbed his gun and stepped out of his vehicle. He held the weapon behind his back as he calmly walked over to his mark. When he heard someone approaching, James turned to look out of his window. He was clearly surprised to see Glennon. But before he had a chance to speak, Glennon cocked the gun and fired into his shoulder. The dentist chuckled to himself. He hadn't actually bought his wife a Christmas present yet, but James's murder would certainly help him buy the perfect gift. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we're talking about Glennon Engelman, a dentist by day and prolific murderer by night. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we'll cover the events leading up to Glennon's first murders. Along the way, we'll see how he manipulated the women in his life into joining his deadly schemes. Next time, we'll follow Glennon as his money-making plots become even more unhinged. He had no problem killing just about anyone who stood between him and his next payday. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P dot com slash serial killers. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Life is full of paradoxes. Good people can do bad things. And sometimes evil people surprise us all with a noble act. Take, for example, Glennon Engelman. He seemed to genuinely care for some of his clients and occasionally offered free dental care to those in need. But even though Glennon showed mercy to a few patients, he took no pity when it came to his victims. So while the world can't easily be divided into good and bad, it feels safe to say that Glennon Engelman was as close to pure evil as one could get. Considering his abnormal behavior later in life, Glennon Engelman had a surprisingly ordinary and relatively stable childhood. He was born in 1927 in a working-class neighborhood of St. Louis, Missouri. His father, Frank, worked as a railroad clerk, and his mother, Honora, took care of their four kids. Honora took no trouble to hide the fact that Glennon was her favorite. He was her youngest, and she endlessly doted on him. She built up his confidence early on and pushed him to thrive in all his endeavors. She was certain that one day he'd be wildly successful. Glennon's father, meanwhile, was another story. He mostly just kept to himself. When he wasn't working, he was usually drinking. And when he was home, he deferred to his wife. Frank didn't seem to mind this dynamic. He also didn't take issue with Honora devoting the bulk of her attention to their youngest. Although Glennon was spectacular in Honora's eyes, he was actually a pretty average kid with run-of-the-mill looks and middling grades. These characteristics persisted into his high school days. After graduation, Glennon wanted to go into the medical field, but his academics weren't strong enough. Plus, his parents didn't have the funds to send him to an expensive university. So he came up with a different plan. In the mid-1940s, he enlisted in the United States Army Air Corps. We know that his time in the military greatly impacted Glennon. After several years in the service, Glennon came home a changed man. He went into the military weak-willed and reserved, which might have been a result of his mother's coddling. However, after he returned, he was assertive, argumentative, and aggressive. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. As a note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to a 2012 study published in Psychological Science, personality changes can be linked to time in the military. Researchers discovered that military recruits tended to be less agreeable than other members of society. 
Additionally, armed service seemed to reinforce those character traits. Men with military experience scored lower in personality tests that measured agreeableness than civilians. This may help explain Glennon's change in behavior. Prior to his time in the Air Corps, we know of no history of trauma or aggression, so it's entirely possible that his experience there was the spark that ignited his violent tendencies. By the time Glennon returned to St. Louis around 1950, he had a short fuse and a dangerous temper. He often got into heated debates about community issues in his Southside neighborhood. He was forthright with his views. He blamed any and all issues on the queer and black residents in the area. Despite this behavior, Glennon settled back into civilian life relatively quickly. And before long, he decided to finally make good on his medical dreams. At 23 years old, he began studying dentistry at nearby Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks to the GI Bill, Glennon could actually afford the respected school. He was determined to make the most of the opportunity. His mother had always had big dreams for her golden child, and it seemed he was finally fulfilling his destiny. When he wasn't in class, Glennon's main extracurricular interest was meeting women. He didn't have much experience with the opposite sex and was, let's say, eager for female attention. One day on campus, Glennon met education student Edna Ruth Ball. Edna had a sweet personality and a very pretty face. Glennon was enamored right away. The two hit it off and soon started dating. It didn't take long for Glennon to propose. When he got down on one knee, Edna was ecstatic. She said yes without hesitation, and they practically sprinted down the aisle. The couple couldn't keep their hands off each other. The faster they tied the knot, the sooner they could consummate the marriage. So, after a short engagement, Edna and Glennon married in 1953. Strangely, the newlyweds never shared a home. Glennon still lived with his mother, Honora, and Edna couldn't understand their bizarrely close relationship. So she chose to stay in student housing rather than move in with her mother-in-law. For a time, living separately appeared to work for the couple. But once the excitement of the new romance wore off, the cracks in their union began to show. Glennon and Edna discovered that they didn't really have much in common. Where they did connect, however, was over their voracious appetite for sex. Glennon often bragged to his friends about his new wife's sex drive. To Glennon, sex wasn't about romance. It was about his own pleasure and nothing else. So, although it seemed Edna was excited about their time in the bedroom, it's not clear how much he actually enjoyed these intimate moments. Glennon's behavior around sex might have been psychologically driven. In a 2011 study from the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience, researchers examined how viewing sexualized female bodies impacted male cognition. They discovered that while looking at these images, there was less activity in the part of the brain responsible for seeing another entity as human. In other words, the more sexualized a woman was in a man's brain, the more he saw her as an object. This certainly seemed to be the case with Glennon and his wife, and eventually, this became a clear problem. By the time Glennon graduated from university in 1954, it seemed that even his lust for Edna wasn't enough to save their relationship. But for the time being, the couple let things simmer. They were both too focused on work to try to repair their marriage. Edna soon began her career as a kindergarten teacher, and Glennon opened a dental clinic. His new office was in South St. Louis, in an area close to where he lived with his mother. 
By all accounts, Glennon was an average dentist. In addition to his lackluster services, he often went off on bigoted rants. But he scraped by because his services were cheap and his patients were often desperate. Glennon wanted to give back to his community and often filled cavities, pulled rotting teeth, and relieved toothaches for free. This is likely why he maintained a loyal clientele despite his lack of talent and rude behavior. But because of his generosity and his patients' financial struggles, Glennon didn't make as much money as he would have liked. Although he lived comfortably, he craved more. While Glennon was preoccupied with work, Edna turned her attention to their relationship. She'd finally had enough. The couple had been married for almost three years, and they still didn't live together. Enough was enough. In early 1956, Edna and Glennon divorced amicably. By that stage, they were both ready to move on. Glennon wasted no time returning to his womanizing ways. He wasn't particularly attractive, but made up for it with his natural charisma. Thanks to his magnetic personality, he had no trouble finding sexual partners. After a few weeks on the prowl, Glennon met a petite blonde named Ida. Following a whirlwind romance, the two married that April. Unlike Edna, Ida moved in with Glennon and his mother, but the two women were immediately at odds. Honora didn't think Ida was smart enough for her son, and unfortunately for Glennon's new wife, he always took his mother's side in arguments. Ida was hurt by Honora's disdain and upset with Glennon's ambivalence towards the situation. But what bothered her even more was Glennon's continued contact with his ex-wife. Despite their recent divorce, Edna and Glennon remained on surprisingly good terms. It turned out that they were more than just close friends, though. They still slept together, frequently. They went behind Ida's back and often met up at Glennon's dental office. But as far as we can tell, there wasn't much romance there. On the whole, it seemed like a somewhat transactional relationship. Whenever Glennon wanted to have sex, he invited Edna over. And when Edna needed cash, she came to see Glennon. Since their divorce, it seems Edna had been struggling financially, and eventually her money troubles sparked a dangerous plan in Glennon's mind, one he gleefully shared with her. Now that Edna was single, she was free to meet other men. Maybe she'd even get married again. Being a cautious woman, it would make sense to take out a life insurance policy on a new husband. And if he just so happened to drop dead, well, it would mean a handsome payout. It would only be fair that Glennon, who'd so wisely advised her to take out the insurance policy, would get a portion of the money. Although Edna was strapped for cash, killing someone to get rich sounded extreme. But Glennon still had a hold on his ex-wife. Somehow he could convince her to do almost anything, even agreeing to his murderous plan. Now, they just needed to find a man they could lead into their trap. Coming up, Glennon plays matchmaker for his ex-wife. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility. And some implausible ones, too. I'm Sarah Turney host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, 
I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By the spring of 1958, 31-year-old Glennon Engelman was running his own dental practice in St. Louis. Occasionally, his patients couldn't afford to pay him in full. However, Glennon had always wanted to be wealthy and wasn't happy with his relatively meager paycheck. He'd also recently remarried, but still slept with his ex-wife, Edna Ruth Ball. Edna had money woes of her own, and Glennon figured he could kill two birds with one stone. Edna could marry a man, sign him up for a life insurance policy, and Glennon would take care of the rest. Then they'd split the payout. Now they just needed to find a target. Glennon looked to his career for inspiration. He decided to start working part-time as a dentist for Union Electric. Knowing that there were lots of young single men in the offices, perhaps he figured he'd find a match for Edna in no time. Soon enough, Glennon had his mark. As he cleaned 27-year-old James Stanley Bullock's teeth, the clerk complained about his love life. Glennon feigned concern and casually suggested that he set James up with his ex-wife Edna. He assured James that there were no hard feelings between them. James thought the situation was somewhat odd, but he had no other options. He agreed to at least meet Edna and see how it went. James and Edna went on several seemingly successful dates. And sure enough, after a few months, he proposed. Edna had been waiting for this moment and readily agreed to marry him. Following Glennon's instructions, Edna took out a $64,000 life insurance policy on James shortly after their wedding. In 2021, that would be over $600,000. Glennon was pleased. Everything was going smoothly and James didn't suspect a thing. But the next step was the most crucial. Glennon needed to come up with a foolproof way to get rid of Edna's new husband. Glennon was giddy with the possibilities. As he racked his brain for ideas, his bigoted beliefs creeped in. He decided to make it look like James was killed in a gay sexual encounter gone wrong. He hoped the police wouldn't dig too deep into the murder if they thought James was queer. At this point in time, being gay was even less accepted than it is today. With his plan set, Glennon was ready to strike. On the night of Wednesday, December 17, 1958, James was hanging Christmas lights on his and Edna's new home. He was happy with the decorations and excited to spend the holidays with his wife. James loved having time alone with Edna, but he was eager to have kids. With that plan in mind, he wanted to find a better paying job. The electric company didn't pay him much, and Edna's teacher salary was minimal, so he decided to take evening accounting classes. With the Christmas lights finished, he was ready to head out. 
He just needed to stop at the St. Louis Art Museum on his way to class. He was supposed to meet up with a friend there. With a final glance at his handiwork, he jumped into his car and set off. A little while later, he arrived at the museum and waited around back, but his friend never showed. Instead, James was surprised to see a man, allegedly Glennon Engelman, walking towards him. And at first, he didn't see the 22 caliber gun in his dentist's hand. Glennon calmly approached James's car. When he got close enough, he lifted the gun and fired. James was badly hurt, but still alive. He managed to stumble towards the front of the museum. He let out a muffled cry begging for help. Glennon chased after him, his gun raised and at the ready. James made it out to the busy main road before collapsing in front of several commuters. Glennon walked up to James and shot him twice in the head, killing him. Leaving James's body in the middle of the street, Glennon rushed off. He seemed oddly unfazed by the whole experience. It's safe to say that Glennon's behavior was careless and cruel, which fits with his later diagnosis of sociopathy. It's important to note, however, that sociopathy is no longer an accepted psychological term, and in 2021, he would likely receive a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. According to the DSM-5, people with antisocial personality disorder often display pathological personality traits like callousness. They also frequently engage in dangerous, risky, and potentially self-damaging activities. This certainly tracks with Glennon's conduct that day. Not only had he allegedly killed an innocent man, but multiple witnesses had seen the crime, and he didn't seem to care. Glennon was long gone by the time police arrived at the scene to find James dead with multiple bullet wounds. At first, authorities guessed that James had been killed by an unhinged lover after a spontaneous hookup. The parking lot behind the museum was a well-known meeting spot amongst the local gay community. It seemed that Glennon had chosen the perfect location after all. But after more thorough investigation, police changed their tune. The brutal and deliberate nature of the crime suggested that James's murder was premeditated. With that in mind, they turned their attention to James's personal life. Perhaps his wife had a jealous, dangerous ex who wanted James dead. And just like that, their suspicions landed on Glennon. They brought him into the Newstead Avenue station for questioning the next day, but Glennon wasn't nervous. He'd already come up with an airtight alibi. He told police he'd been Christmas shopping for his wife on the night of James's murder. After buying Ida a gift, he returned home for dinner with her and a few friends. Ida and his buddies confirmed the whole story. Lead investigator Sergeant Frank O'Neill didn't buy Glennon's story, but he had little evidence to back up his hunch. A few days later, however, Sergeant O'Neill got the ammo he needed. He discovered that Glennon had recently purchased a 22 caliber gun, the same type of weapon that had been used to kill James. When confronted with this information, Glennon said he'd given the gun to his father-in-law long before the attack. Police searched for the gun, but came up empty. Without this critical piece of evidence, Sergeant O'Neill's hands were tied. Meanwhile, Glennon seemed emboldened by the fruitless probe. As the investigation stalled, his confidence only grew. Eventually, his ego was so inflated that he held his own press conference. 
He told reporters that the police were incompetent, and then he insulted James with a barrage of homophobic slurs. It's unclear if James was actually gay or whether this was part of a plan to throw police off the scene. But there's no question that Glennon's bigoted beliefs were genuine. His hate-filled speech was nothing new. Glennon's patients had been listening to his anti-gay and racist tirades for years now. This aggressive behavior might have been tied to his antisocial personality disorder. A 2021 study from Personality and Individual Differences Journal showed that individuals with psychopathic tendencies are more likely to discriminate against marginalized groups. In other words, there may be a direct link between racism and ASPD. But that still doesn't explain his bizarre decision to hold a press conference. After Glennon made his public statements, the police renewed their efforts to bring James justice. With the extra attention on him, it seemed like Glennon could crack at any moment. At the same time, they began investigating Edna's possible involvement in her husband's death. They knew about her pending life insurance payout and were suspicious. But soon, investigators faced an unlikely roadblock. Edna told the St. Louis Globe Democrat that the authorities were harassing her. Shortly after her tearful interview, she moved back to her family home in Kansas City. It seems that the police department didn't want the public to think they were badgering a grieving widow. So, they dropped the case. Soon enough, James's death was old news. Although Glennon hadn't seen a dime of the insurance money yet, he was smug with his performance. He'd gotten away with killing a man and thoroughly enjoyed subverting the course of justice. Glennon got almost as much pleasure from his deadly plot as he did from sex, but not quite. Sometime in the early 1960s, 34-year-old Glennon began a sexual relationship with his wife's 16-year-old niece, Sandy. Sandy had temporarily moved in with her Aunt Ida, Glennon, and Glennon's mother to escape difficulties at home. It was supposed to be a brief stay, but Glennon took a liking to Sandy. It's not clear how Sandy felt about the situation, but their age difference was telling. It was definitely a predatory relationship. Nonetheless, the two spent a great deal of time together. For her part, Ida could tell Glennon was being unfaithful. After all, he'd cheated on her before, with his ex-wife, Edna. Eventually, she grew suspicious of his relationship with Sandy and insisted that her niece return home. But Glennon wouldn't hear of it. To appease Ida, he suggested Sandy get her own apartment in St. Louis. There was a slight problem, though. Glennon couldn't afford to sponsor Sandy's move on his own. If he wanted Sandy to stay close, he needed more cash quickly. It was time for another deadly plot. Coming up, Glennon's next money-making venture ends in murder. Now back to the story. In 1962, 35-year-old Glennon Engelman was looking to make some cash fast. He needed to support his wife's teenage niece, Sandy, who was also his new mistress, and his dentist's salary wouldn't cut it. Thinking he was an entrepreneurial genius, Glennon had recently decided to dip into his savings and buy a plot of land in Pacific, Missouri, about 35 miles outside of St. Louis. He decided that the best way to bring in cash was to build a drag racing strip on the land. He'd split his time between his dental office and the racetrack, and he thought the investment was a no-brainer. Plus, it would give Sandy a place to work. 
Glennon's ex-wife, Edna Ruth Ball, also chipped in on the venture. In 1958, it's suspected that Glennon had killed Edna's husband, James. Eventually, Edna received his life insurance payout, just in time to give Glennon his share. She invested $20,000 of the $64,000 payout into Glennon's racetrack as payment for getting rid of James. To save on labor costs, Glennon and his family did most of the construction on Pacific Drag Strip themselves. Occasionally, they needed extra hands, so Glennon hired a young mechanic in his 20s, Eric Frey, to help out. As Eric spent more time at the track, he and Sandy grew closer. Noticing the sparks between them, Glennon encouraged the romance. Although Glennon and Sandy were still sleeping together, he wasn't jealous of Eric. Glennon's mind was on the money. Unfortunately, his seemingly great business idea was draining his finances quickly. But he realized that if Sandy seduced Eric, they could easily pull off another life insurance scheme and bounce back. Sure enough, Eric and Sandy started dating, setting everything in motion. Glennon hinted that the two should marry and pushed Eric to propose to his wife's niece. The mechanic happily obliged. Sandy was young and beautiful, and Eric was ready to settle. In late September of 1962, Eric and 18-year-old Sandy tied the knot. Step number two, complete. Behind the scenes, Glennon was coaching Sandy on what to do next. She knew about his scheme and was happy to do her part. It's likely that Sandy believed her uncle was intelligent and good with money. He would never lead her astray. Following directions, Sandy took out a hefty premium on Eric, but she fell behind on the payments. Shifting gears, he took out a group life insurance policy, which would cover all the employees at Pacific Drag Strip, including Eric. Now, Glennon just needed to find a way to kill Eric and make it look like an accident. Of course, as the killer plotted his next move, he and Sandy continued their affair. Her sham marriage to Eric hadn't changed things between them. In fact, it only made Glennon more excited. For Glennon, sex and crime were intertwined. Both gave him a sense of power, and his sexual partners were often directly involved in his murder plots. According to research published in a 2012 issue of Biological Psychology, there may be a direct link between sex and aggression. Researchers found that 20% of neurons that fire during reproductive behavior also fire during male-on-male -male aggression. It's possible that the cognitive overlap between sex and violence leads men like Glennon to associate aggression with sex. In other words, Glennon's plot to kill Eric might have thrilled him both sexually and psychologically. Soon after Sandy and Eric married, however, Glennon had another motivation for his sinister plan. The newlyweds fought constantly, and things often got physical. Eric reportedly pushed Sandy around, leaving her with obvious signs of domestic abuse. Glennon was furious. He hadn't expected his latest target to be so unruly. Things came to a head in the spring of 1963, when Sandy found out she was pregnant. Glennon suspected that the baby was his, and it made him anxious to get rid of Eric sooner rather than later. He was ready to strike. On September 26, 1963, Eric and Sandy left for work earlier than usual. Glennon needed help with a big project at the racetrack that day, and had asked for all hands on deck. 
As they drove along, Sandy, perhaps feeling nauseous from her pregnancy, asked Eric to pull over. Whether or not she was really ill is unclear, but the stop bought Glennon valuable time to lay his trap. When the couple finally pulled up to the drag strip, Glennon greeted them with a smile. His friends and business partners, Nick Miranda and Jack Carter, were also present. Nick and Jack supposedly knew about Glennon's scheme to kill Eric, but they didn't think he'd actually go through with it. They'd always thought that Glennon was more bark than bite. With everyone just where he needed them, Glennon told the group he wanted an old well on the property blown up. His nieces and nephews sometimes played nearby, he said, and he was afraid one of them might fall in. Glennon and Eric were going to place dynamite all along the edge of the hole while Nick and Jack worked farther away near the detonator. Meanwhile, Sandy just had to relax in the shade. As Eric placed the last few charges down, Glennon stepped backwards. He raised his hand and signaled to Jack. Eric was just inches away from the pile of explosives. All Jack needed to do was ignite the dynamite. According to witness accounts, nothing happened. Glennon looked at Jack, but it seemed his friend couldn't go through with it. Perhaps he just didn't have the stomach for murder. Glennon wasn't going to let his friend's cowardice ruin his plans. He bent over and picked up a hefty rock from the ground. Without a second thought, he bashed the stone into Eric's skull. Eric crumpled to the ground, but was still conscious. Glennon lunged forward and grabbed for the mechanic. He dragged him towards the well. Then he threw him down into the water. Eric struggled to stay afloat and cried out for help, but Glennon ignored him. At last, they finally got the charge to ignite. The well exploded as rocks and debris rained down on the group. When the dust cleared, the opening of the well was completely covered, with Eric trapped inside under several feet of rubble. After the eruption, Glennon feigned concern. He screamed out for Eric and yelled for someone to call an ambulance. The other employees at the track race came running. With so many witnesses, Glennon was committed to his act. He climbed into what was left of the well and began digging frantically. In contrast, Sandy approached the crime scene expressionless. In the immediate aftermath of the explosion, she couldn't believe it had actually happened. While the other workers tried to retrieve Eric's body, Glennon pulled his accomplices aside. He told Nick and Jack they needed to get their story straight. If authorities asked, they would simply say Eric died in a tragic accident. Before long, the Franklin County Sheriff's Department had arrived. They questioned everyone at the scene and got the same answer from all sides. Eric had tried to blow up the well and the dynamite went off prematurely. It seemed that coordinating their story had saved Glennon and his cronies. The authorities ruled Eric's death an accident. They didn't even file an official report. After the initial shock wore off, Sandy was ready to reap the rewards of Glennon's carefully thought-out plan. That very same night, she called Pacific Drag Strip's life insurance agent and filed her claim. She wanted the payout for her husband's death as soon as possible. The insurance representative thought it was highly unusual for a grieving widow to be concerned with money so soon after her husband's death. Over the phone, the agent encouraged Sandy to take a monthly payment rather than a lump sum. But the teen was adamant. She wanted the money now. 
The representative could sense something wasn't right and alerted her boss to Sandy's strange behavior. Intrigued, the insurance company launched an investigation into Eric's death. Glennon and Sandy sped into action. Sandy's call had been reckless. A thorough investigation could derail everything. They destroyed any evidence they had and cremated Eric's body to prevent authorities from performing an autopsy. Investigators with the insurance agency took statements from all of the Pacific Drag Strip employees. But just as the police had found, everyone's story was the same. As far as they could tell, Eric's death had been one big accident. But unlike the police, they weren't convinced. At the end of their investigation, the insurance company turned over their evidence to different law enforcement agencies. But the authorities didn't do anything. It's unclear why they decided not to take any action in the case. Even though the police weren't convinced, the agency still refused to fill Sandy's claim. In the end, she had to file a lawsuit to get her hands on the money. Several months after Eric's death, the insurance company was forced to cut Sandy a check for the full $25,000 payout. Within days, she'd invested $16,000 into Pacific Drag Strip. Once again, Glennon had escaped prison and gotten a handsome reward for his murderous deed. However, even with this latest infusion of cash, Pacific Drag Strip was doomed. The racetrack declared bankruptcy in 1964. As Glennon's side business folded, Sandy's due date was approaching, and she decided to move back home to Texas to deliver her child. In January of 1964, she gave birth to a baby girl who bore a striking resemblance to Glennon. However, it appears Sandy needed some time away. Her family ended up caring for the child throughout much of her first year. Meanwhile, Sandy traveled around the country with her girlfriends, likely burning through the rest of her insurance money. Even though Sandy was no longer in the picture, Glennon was convinced that the child was his, and he wanted to provide for her. But like Sandy, Glennon had spent all of his cash. His bank account would soon be empty once again. His business venture had failed, and his dental practice wasn't paying the bills. But murder was. He just needed to find his next victim. Or victims. The murderous scams were just beginning. Glennon Engelman wasn't done yet. Thanks again for tuning into Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with part two of Glennon Engelman's story, when he once again trades in his dental drill and toothbrush for a shotgun and dynamite. For more information on Glennon Engelman, amongst the many sources we used, we found Appointment for Murder, the Story of the Killing Dentist by Susan Crane Bacchus, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from ParCast. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Matt Hartman, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder, we'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.